This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with award-winning medical ethicist, journalist, and author Harriet A. Washington about one of her best-selling books entitled Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Harriet A. Washington has been a fellow in ethics at Harvard Medical School, a fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health, and a senior research scholar at the National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. As a journalist and editor, she has worked for USA Today and several other publications. She has been a Knight Fellow at Stanford University and has written for such academic forums as the Harvard Public Health Review and the New England Journal of Medicine. She is a recipient of several prestigious awards for her work, such as the National Book Critics Circle Nonfiction Award, a Penn Award, and many others. In her book, Medical Apartheid, Washington documents a horrifying, barbaric, and shameful history of exploitation of blacks by a white medical establishment in the pursuit of so-called research. For centuries, Washington shows blacks were used exclusively and or disproportionately as subjects in medical experiments, often without their consent or even their knowledge. In this process, they endured surgery without anesthesia, forced sterilization, and testing of potentially deadly medications, among other terrorisms. Without further ado, let's talk to Harriet A. Washington. Welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond. Hello, Taj. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I just want to first of all say that this is an incredible book. I was wondering what motivated you? What, why did you take it on? Well, I was motivated by several things. Um, when I first began collecting the information that I used in the book, no one was talking about health disparities. Many people were failing to acknowledge health disparities. I worked in hospitals, and as I recount in the um, early chapters of the book, I ran a poison control center in a hospital in upstate New York, and I came across some file folders in a forgotten uh, file cabinet and saw that the patients who were anticipating treatment for their um, uh, who needed kidney transplants, essentially, for their insane renal disease, were being treated differently by race. That's at least how it appeared. Uh, looking at the various file folders, the white patients um, had extensive social histories that documented their familial support, the other sources of support, the fact that they had insurance, all the things taken into consideration when you consider whether someone is a candidate for an organ. But the black patients who might have had the same insurance sometimes and who often had the same level of familiar support, more often there are notes such as the one that said, our plan for this patient is to help him prepare for his imminent demise. Wow. Not to get him an organ to keep him alive, but to help him adjust to the idea that he's going to die soon. So why were the patients being treated disparately by race if, those, if what the file folders suggest turned out to be true? And why is nobody concerned about that? Well, one answer is really obvious. If you look at the transplant surgeons and the people making decisions, uh, there were very, very few African-Americans during that time. Um, it's important to remember that the peak year for graduating 
uh, male African-American physicians was 1974. Mm -hmm. It remains 1974. Um, So the representation is much better now, but you still have certain groups who are wildly unrepresented. So that incident really sparked a desire to find out whether or not my suspicion was true. And people were being still treated differently because of their race. I found not only that they were, but there was a long history of this. I had long haunted um, the medical library at the hospital where I worked. They're interested in the history of medicine. And um, I found almost no books written about African Americans in the history of medicine. Lots of books written about other groups, but nothing about African Americans or very little, one or two books. And um, I began finding information in other books where they alluded to treatment of African Americans and began to understand that this treatment was not only systematically different, but it was based on some biases and and superstitions, stereotypes of African Americans that were untrue, but that supported their abuse in the um, in the medical system and certainly supported their abuse in the slave system. So um, medicine was used to support enslavement and support the abuse of African-Americans in medical research for centuries in this country. And very few people paid attention. And, and if, if I got this right, it's hard to come by this information. Uh, Not anyone can really go into medical libraries and retrieve this information. So, I guess you had that privilege. And also, what what did you find in these journals that these physicians would say? Was it that obvious? Well, I want to, depending on the time, I want to clarify first that you're right, that to gain access to these journals is not easy even today. Even today, many medical schools, you have to present identification that shows you're a member of the medical community. For example, at my undergraduate um, institution, even being an undergraduate or graduate student at the university would not let you into the medical school. You had to have an ID that showed that you were either a physician or an employee of the hospital. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, access is different, difficult. But in a very important sense, access is not difficult in that the people who do history of medicine have always had access to this information. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, they chose not to focus upon it. So for African-Americans and for affected people, yes, there are many bars to it. There's English, and then there's English literacy, of course, was a bar, and jargon. Mm. You know, these journal articles were written in language that educated um, people in other specialties don't understand. You could be a very well-educated person with a degree in literature or law, but if you don't have a degree in sciences and if you don't have experience reading medical journals, you'll read these articles and you can't be sure of what you've read. Also, the way the articles were written uh, focused on issues of interest to other practitioners. So you can have an article, for example, that dwells upon the technique for removing a jawbone and the technique for um, immobilizing a patient. And as you read the article, you realize that they're talking about a slave who had refused, his name was Sam, he had refused surgery. He didn't want it. But the surgeon had the medical students tie him to a chair and removed half of his jawbone anyway, even though he didn't want the surgery. But this was not the focus of the article. The focus of the article was on the technique, surgical technique, the things that the practitioner were interested in. So there are many, many barriers to understanding what had happened. Uh, people who were trained like medical personnel and historians could have read it and understood it. But Everyday people, even if they had somehow gotten access to the information, would not have been able to understand it. Wow, I see. 
We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Driving through the fog with my high beams, putting on my visine. Let me tell you just what I seen. Angels falling from the sky. I just hope that they can take me back to where the pearly gates be. And I've been counting down the days because I know we gotta die soon. That just means I get to fly soon. And I know I'm not the only one out here that's not afraid. Alright, alrighty, well I'm finally on my way. I know I can't fail if God tests in my faith. And if I don't hurry, I might be too late. Even with all of this darkness in my grave, I still can't help but shine. I can't help but shine. I still can't help but shine. And we can't help but shine. I can't help but shine. You see it. Hey, I can't help but shine. So when, when when you start out the book, you first kind of start out talking about medical exploitation on the plantation. Um, can you talk about the state of medicine and medical treatment during slavery? I think the thing that's important to remember is that there were aspects of medicine that are very different from today. First of all, the prestige of physicians was almost non-existent. Physicians were actually looked down upon by some strata of society. Hmm. And um, there were physicians who had a very hard time making a living, earning enough money to feed themselves. So it was not the prestigious, you know, lucrative profession that it is today with a lot of status. Um, and, and that was really important because a lot of the um, things that ultimately fed the abuse of African American grew from the desire of physicians to elevate the status of their profession. Mm-hmm. Also, there was a lot of ad hoc experimentation going on. Today, we have very rigid laws that um, supposedly dictate the circumstances in which we do research and dictate what um, investigators can and cannot do as researchers. But back then, there were very few such laws instead, so that you had a laissez-faire atmosphere. A lot more experimentation in therapy was accepted. There's a lot more of a doctor saying, well, that didn't really cure your tuberculosis. Let me try this mm. that I have on the shelf. That You couldn't do that so easily today, but that was accepted back then. But what a lot of people fail to understand is they say that, well, you didn't have any laws against experimental abuse, so you can't really blame the doctors for having, you know, abuse African-Americans in research setting. But yes, we can, because even though there were not laws, like the federal laws we have today and the state laws, what we had were physicians' um, practices and codes of honor and hospital rules that were just as binding. So physicians knew that there there were things that they could and could not do. One of the things they could not do is research on someone without asking their permission. Mm. Unlike today, today asking permission is a very detailed, lengthy process, and it's got to be validated um, on paper. But back then, all you had to do was ask someone yes or no. I want to try giving you um, arsenic to to treat your tuberculosis. The patient could say yes or no. That was always done with white patients, definitely always done with male white patients, and it was routinely ignored with African-American patients. Um, If you wanted to do an experiment on an African-American, the person whose permission you needed 
was his owner, wow. not the slaves. Yeah. And so the owner w- would give their permission or withhold permission, and um, it was the owner who had to be satisfied. The other key, th- key difference between uh, today's medicine and yesterday's medicine is the – and I hesitate to say there's a difference because we haven't completely said it. But during the um, era of enslavement, the perception of black people – was not exactly that of a patient. Mm. You know, we loosely use the term patient to refer to any human being who's being treated by a physician. But if you think about what a patient is, African-Americans were not patients. The Western uh, uh, patient-physician dyad dictated the healing relationship uh, for most patients, for white patients, patients with property. And that was that the patient trusted the physician, and the physician had a very strong sense of responsibility toward the patient. It's a very beautiful relationship, you know, mutual trust, essential, but that's not what ruled the um, conduct between black people and doctors. Doctors did not um, have a relationship with the patient, with the black patient, but with the owner. It was the owner who decided when a doctor should be called in. It was the owner who decided what should or should not be done, giving permission for everything from an amputation to an abortion to treatment for malaria. It was the owner who had to be satisfied with the outcome. And this is really um, ominous because most owners did not call in doctors unless the patient, unless the African-American slave was almost dead. Mm-hmm. Until then, they would have the overseers treat them or their wives or daughters. They didn't want to spend the money for a doctor to come in. And doctors often complained about that in their journals and in their um, their own memoirs about how the owners would not call them in until the last minute when the slave was almost dead. So what you had was a relationship between the slave owner and the patient and the physician with the black person left outside, unconsulted and with no remedy if he were sickened or worsened or killed. As a parenthetical, one important clue I found about the regard of physicians and owners toward their um, enslaved quote-unquote patients was the fact that back then getting insurance was something that you did for your farm animals, for your farm equipment, and for your slaves. But slave owners did not insurance for themselves or their family. That was considered degrading. Mm. They insured slaves because slaves were considered property, valuable property. But eventually, Insurance companies would not accept policies that would reimburse a slave owner for the full value of the slave because they had learned that the slave owner um, were too often willing to let the slave die in order to collect the entire amount. And they were worrying that slaves would go untreated and die, and then they'd have to pay out. So you can see that from the very beginning, black people were regarded as something other than patients. And this myth has come up. A very convenient myth that I heard very, very often as I was writing this book. Uh, people would say, people who should have known better, people would say to me, well, of course the slave owners and the doctors wanted the um, black slaves to be healthy <laughs> because they needed them to work the fields, you know, so it was in their interest to keep them healthy. No, it was in their interest to keep them fit for work. Explain that. Being fit for work and being healthy are two different things. Mm. You can be fit for work and be riddled with parasites. You can be fit Mm. for work and be profoundly depressed. You can be fit for work and be grossly ill, but not allowed to seek treatment because your owner thought it was too expensive and decided that you must be malingering or lying about your illness. So being fit for work was the key for African-Americans, whereas being healthy was the key for white patients. Wow, that's incredible. And you know what? You also 
started talking about the so-called father of American gynecology, James Marion mm-hmm. James Marion Sims. Can you talk yes. about him and some of his sadistic experiments? He's very important because he's so typical of our medical heroes. You know, he's not important because he was an outlier of some sort or because he was like a strange Dr. Frankenstein figure. To me, he's very important and interesting because he actually represented the typical researcher who's, who we decide is a hero. We need to rethink our definition of a, of a medical hero because what we tend to do is indicate that if a person achieves something important for medicine or we decide it's important for medicine, we grant him hero status, but we don't think about how he came to this, um, how he came to this pass. And James Marion Sims did do something important for medicine, but the way he did it was by abusing, savagely abusing the bodies of black women and men. James Marion Sims was actually the physician I referred to earlier who had tied the slave to a barber's chair who didn't want surgery and removed his jawbone and then wrote it up in a medical journal, quite proud of what he had done. Jameson also wanted to cure a disease called vesicle vaginal fistula, not a disease, actually a condition. And basically it was a result of a woman going into labor for a very long period and not being able to pass the baby because um, her birth canal was not large enough. Now, this happened more often to enslaved black women than it happened to white women. It happened to a lot of white women, too. And James Marion Sims knew that if um, he could cure this, he would be, you know, lionized for it. People would admire him. He'd become a hero. He would make his fortune. This is because not only was it a horrible condition for any woman to undergo, when the women went through this unsuccessful labor, the weight of the baby's body pressing against her tissues would often cause the tissues to die and fall away. And she'd be left with openings in her genitalia between her rectum, vagina, and that would mean she'd be incontinent. A horrible condition, a terrible way to live. The constant infection, constant pain. You can't control the, your, uh, the flow of urine and your excreta. Just a horrible way to live. For Victorian women, Victorian white women, it meant a social death. You could not go into society anymore. Mm-hmm. But for black women, what did it mean? It, they couldn't work. So it was a very important condition to cure. And Simmons was determined to cure it. And, in fact, he did find a way to cure it. What he did was he borrowed or otherwise obtained a group of slave women, and he kept them in a shack on his property, locked in a shack on his property. And he experimented with with them by using his scalpel to cut into their genitalia, sew it together. But every time he did that, tissues would become infected and they'd fall apart again. Mm -hmm. woman would be right back to where she was before, even worse, with more pain, with more infection. But Sims didn't stop. One... um, one enslaved woman suffered 30 surgeries. Oh, wow. 30 surgical failures. This went on for years and years, at least five years, possibly longer. And during this time, he finally found a way to close one of the holes. He found that by using uh, sutures made of silver rather than the biological materials like cat gut that they had used during the Victorian era, using a uh, silver sutures prevented the infection that kept defeating the surgeries. So he was able to close the hole. He said, ah, that's how I'm going to do it. I'll be using these silver sutures. But he didn't hang around to to cure these black women. He closed the one hole and then immediately wrote about it in the medical journals and then went to Paris. He became the toast of Paris. 
and the personal physician of Empress Eugenie. From there, he came to New York City and became the, um, you know, basically the, the lion of the New York Academy of Medicine. So, in New York City, interestingly, he wrote about his um, success in curing vesicovaginal fistula, but he illustrated the um, medical journal article with pictures of white women. He did that because he knew that unlike Alabama, where he had um, done surgery on these, on these entrapped black women, he knew that in New York City that was not going to play well. He'd be criticized. Mm-hmm. Also, that with the t- passing of time, what I found was that in the 17th, 18th, early 18th centuries, you find physicians boasting about uh, medical advances they have made using um, enslaved and entrapped African Americans. Cruel things like cutting off the arms and legs of slaves who were not perfectly well, but to prove that they had a better technique for removing an arm or a leg. They would do things like that, and they were not shy about it. This was like the uh, culture of the land. The idea was that these people's bodies, Africans' bodies, were there for doctors to use as they wish, for any white man to use as they wish. Uh, As one Supreme Court justice put it, the black man had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. But as time went on, abolitionists and other sentiments against slavery began rising very high. Other countries began banning slavery. And after a while, the United States became a lone barbaric nation that was persisting in enslavement. And so the doctors became more circumstant, and they became a little more um, cagey about the way they described what they did. Instead of boasting and bragging about it, they often tried to hide the fact that things they had done in in research that were, um, shall we say, questionable had been performed on people of color. They tried to hide the fact they were using African Americans, and that's what happened to Sims as well. So, but, But today, Sims is considered the father of American gynecology, at the Academy of Medicine, across from the Academy of Medicine, there's one of several statues to James Marion Sims that are in this country. And he's, a ple- and he's, you know, praised as the father of American gynecology, you know, a champion for women's rights and women's health. And uh, one inscription, not the New York one, I think the one in South Carolina, claims that he, he treated slave and empress alike. <laughs> well, he treated both slaves and empresses, but he did not, did not treat them alike. Right. So he is very, but you know, the, the horrible thing about Dr. Sims is not only what he did, it's the fact that what he did was so common. Mm-hmm. If you look at um, reproductive surgical advances in this country, until the Victorian, end of the Victorian era, every single one was predicated on using the bodies of black and mulatto women, mm-hmm. every woman. Because no one was asking white women to subject themselves to this, and black women could not say no. That's correct. And, you know, one thing, just in case no one really caught on, is that he didn't use anesthesia on these women. No, he didn't. And um, that's interesting because when I bring that up, I've had people say, well, there was no effective anesthesia then. Uh, Their first uh, written report of anesthesia being uh, certain of the – Certain anesthesias, ether, being used successfully is, 19, is uh, 1846. But these people are forgetting or ignoring the fact that during that time, unlike today, people would use treatments before they were written up in the medical journals. I remember I mentioned before that there was a lot more laissez-faire medicine being practiced, mm-hmm. a doctor saying, well, let me try X since Y didn't work. 
That doesn't fly today to a great extent, but that was common back then. So there was a very common use of anesthesia. In fact, medical students were known for having ether parties, parties where they would get high (laughs) using the anesthetic agents. And so Dr. Sims himself wrote in his own memoirs, in his own biography, um, written by a family member, he, um, he said he considered using anesthesia, but it wasn't worth the attendant trouble and risk. Yeah. At, but he had already talked about one slave being in such horrible pain he thought she was going to die. So how could he talk about her being in great pain and then say it wasn't worth these anesthesia? And that's because one of the um, myths about African Americans mm-hmm. that was prom- promoted very early in our country's history among physicians is that African Americans do not feel pain. Gosh. You'll find many, many references to doctors um, claiming that their, pa- their black patients don't feel anything. Uh, Dr. Charles Wright wrote that he does amputations and he has a slave hold the leg themselves because they don't even feel it when he's cutting them. Mm-hmm. All these very bizarre, obviously untrue claims. But this belief, this, this myth supported the use of blacks in medical research because ethically they could excuse themselves by saying, well, they don't feel the pain as a white person would feel. So it's okay to do X to them. It's okay to take a scalpel to these women's genitalia because they're not going to feel it the way a white woman would. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. I've come a long way from a very hard place. It's been a hard race, but somehow I found my way home. I've walked a long road to where only God knows But when the trumpet blows you know I did it all on my own I did it all yeah. Yeah. I've been pushing hard I've been praying harder Only heaven can help me They took my earthly father Martyr me, promised me death And walked me into my grave I'd rather die a free man Than live on earth a slave I'm fighting for people They put in chains They stripped our heritage They took our names Put our women to shame Whipped us and beat us Mislead us But they can't take our passion Take my body But my soul won't fit inside your casket Forget what I said Forget what I did I do what I have to do And I do it all again I've come a long way from a very hard place. It's been a hard race, but somehow I found my way home. I've walked a long road to where only God knows. But when the trumpet blows, you know I did it all on my So you start talking about hospitals back then and how black bodies were considered clinical material. Yes, they were clinical material. And we have to understand that a hospital back then Mm -hmm. was not a hospital today. I mean, hospitals today are highly antiseptic. They're uh, the foci of teaching. They, um, depending on, of course, they vary in quality and in purpose, but they are obsessed with teaching 
and with ethics, all the things that we think are really important to practice good medicine. But in the earlier days of our country, a hospital was like a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. Nobody would go there if they had an option. The only people you found in hospitals were people who did not have enough money to hire private nurses or private doctors um, or had no one to care for them at home. So a hospital was not a pleasant destination. And for African-Americans, it was even worse because at least the whites who landed in hospitals, particularly, I should say the vast majority of whites who landed in hospitals, uh, particularly moneyed whites, at least there the the, um, purpose was to treat and hopefully cure them. Mm -hmm. But for blacks, the purpose was to display them. You had blacks who were, um, hospitals would advertise as slave owners. Do you have sick and unprofitable slaves? Wow sitting around doing nothing, send them to us. Hospitals did not charge slave owners to take their black um, slaves into the hospital. Why wouldn't they charge? Because they knew they'd make their money another way. They made their money teaching medical students. Um, Some of them, the lucky slaves, were just used for display. Not Mm -hmm. that that was a good thing, because instead of having your your liver abscess treated, it was, you know, you were allowed to remain sick. Well, while medical students saw what a liver abscess looked like, but at least you weren't being actively killed. Then you had um, patients who were being, as I said before, had their legs amputated, um, who were dosed, who were um, basically there in order to show you, show students how you treat a certain disease, mm. not how you cure it, how you treat it. They were there for display, and even even death did not save black Americans from um, abuse in the medical arena because after death, the bodies of black Americans preferentially were used for anatomical dissection. And Mm -hmm. one could make a case that they still are today. Mm -hmm. It's hard to prove. I won't say I've proven it because the data is um, lacking. Mm -hmm. The data that should be collected in terms of ethnicity is not being collected. But there's a lot of very strong evidence that difference still maintains today. And we have to understand that using... A body for anatomical dissection um, in the Victorian era does not mean what it meant, means today. Today, people think of it as um, a gift to science. But back then, it was a shameful thing. And many people thought that it would interfere with the body being resurrected. Mm. Um, having your body being used for science to be carved up by medical students who often would, you know, have joking tableaus or photographs and, and treat the bodies very disrespectfully. Mm. Having that done to the body of a loved one was a source of great anxiety and shame for black and white people. And as a result, blacks were used because the whites didn't want that happening to their family members. And they knew that the doctors were going to use somebody. So they would rather them use the blacks than whites. Wow. And, and that's exactly what happened. You also talked about, you know, you just said one reason, one way they were able to get, patients for dissection was they would probably die while they were in the so-called hospitals. But you also talk about other ways they were able to get the black bodies. Right. I think most were found other ways. Um, and some of it was quite creepy. Um, it sort of reads like a really bad 50s, uh, like a 50s science fiction, but <laughs> it actually happened. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, probably the best illustration I can give you is what happened to the Medical College of Georgia, although mm. Georgia was far from alone. Yeah. Not only southern, but also northern medical schools use black bodies preferentially. The northern schools would have a range of the southern schools to send them black bodies. Can you imagine Gosh. that? So Harvard Medical School had an arrangement to be sent 12 southern black cadavers every year so they would have black bodies to do the section on because 
white people did not want white bodies to be treated in that way. Mm-hmm. So in the Medical College of Georgia, I believe, I can't remember the year. I'm going to hazard a guess it was the mid-80s, although it might, might have been a bit later. Uh, construction workers were renovating the old anatomical laboratory. They wanted to turn it into a museum. It was a beautiful Grecian Revival building. When they broke into the basement, they found 9,700 human bones. Wow. 75% of them were African American. Wow. Now, they they sent in – now, the, the one thing I will say, the Medical College of Georgia – they could have opted to try to cover this up, and they did not. Good. What they did was they sent for a team of anthropologists, physical um, physiologists, other physicians to examine the bones and try to find out what had happened here, how the bodies had been used. And this team not only determined that 75% were African-American, but they also determined that how they were used as training material for the medical students. Yeah. And after they finished using the bodies, they simply threw them into the basement and covered them with lime. Oh, my gosh. So what's, it was fascinating because part of the team sent there were anthropologists and psychologists who went into the surrounding areas of Atlanta. They found that the bodies had been taken mostly from a black cemetery hmm. in the Atlanta area. and the I'm sorry, in the Augusta, Georgia area. And the people who lived there said, we could have told you that. We've known for centuries they were, they were going to that cemetery, digging up the bones of our family members and taking them to the laboratory for use. Mm. The other evidence was that the porters of the hospital, whose job it was to go to the cemetery and dig up bodies, they were required to keep notebooks in which they recorded the race of the people they used. This, uh, this uh, medical school needed to prove that they were not using white bodies. So here we have like a, you know, a plethora of evidence. Because the medical school of um, Georgia was um, ethical and forthright enough to allow scientists to, to examine what happened rather than covering it up, we, see, we have a really good example here of what was happening to black people who lived in these communities and had their bodies taken, stolen, and used as medical training material. Gosh. So now, you know, we, we hopefully this is not going on today, but how do – uh, medical institutions now get bodies for dissection. How do we know they're doing it ethically? And are black people still in the majority? As I said before, we unfortunately don't have the data. Let me answer that question. Mm-hmm. I have strong suspicions, but without data, simply right. can't know. But I will tell you why I have suspicions that uh, people of color are still being used preferentially. And that is because, first of all, there are these things called um, medical examiner's laws, they utilize something called presumed consent. And basically what they mean is that um, half, the, half the states in our country have these. And what they say is that if you are killed in certain cities or you die in certain cities, your medical examiner can take your body and retain it for a while. And if no one claims it, they can harvest tissues and whether organs are taken is up for grabs. There's a, you know, two minds. Some people think they are. Some people think they are not. Tissues are definitely taken. Mm-hmm. So this can happen. Now, here's there's several things wrong with this. Aside from the fact that you're not asking anybody's permission to take the tissues from a dead person's body, but you're not even trying to get permission from the family. The laws uh, state that if no one claims a body, 
But if you don't know your loved one has died and the medical examiner has a body, how are you to claim the body? Right. You know, even people who know of this law and who have tried to find out how to uh, exempt themselves have found it's almost impossible to find out. So when you have laws like that, who's going to be affected? Whose bodies are taken? Certain groups of people are going to be at higher risk, right? Homeless people, for example, who typically don't have family or have lost contact with their family. Poor people, because what the laws don't stipulate, but which is usually the case is you have to do more than come and claim the body. You actually have to be able to pay for its disposal, you know, in any way you can. So poor people, even should they find out, are sometimes not in a position to show up to the medical examiner's office and say, I want my loved one's body and I have enough money to transport it to a funeral home and arrange for its disposition. They simply may not. So already we have factors that put people uh, disproportionately at risk. And these are poor people, homeless people, disproportionately people of color. Also, the cities in which this takes place. If you look at the American demographics, you have some majority-minority cities, which means that you have cities where there are more people of color, more African-Americans, say, than white people. And these laws often apply in majority-minority cities. Mm. So you've got a confluence of factors here that will feed the the likelihood that the body in question is going to be a body of a black or Hispanic person. Right. And you brought up a good point, if I remember correctly, in the book. A lot of the teaching institutions were in urban areas. And I think it was, I think you said Harvard Medical moved from the suburbs to Boston because they knew they'd probably be around more clinical material. Exactly. Um, When I was um, at the School of Public Health, it was kind of funny because I always had to correct people who, when I told them, I'm at the Harvard School of Public Health, they said, oh, you're in Cambridge. I said, no, I'm in Boston. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. the medical school and the public health school are in Boston. And I often wondered why. Why is that? that? That's when I looked it up, and I found out there are actual memos from a physician named Warren saying that we need to move the medical school nearer the almshouse. Uh, the almshouse was a place where poor people went, mm-mm. you know, who worked for their keep. You know, it's like a homeless shelter, basically. And we need to be there so we can use the bodies. He First, he complained about how the the Southerners who had been providing him with bodies over the years were raising their prices <sighs> and sometimes angering him by by selling to other schools behind his back so he'd, he'd be able to get no bodies. So we have to have our own bodies, and of course, there was no question of getting them from the people in Cambridge. We need to get go to Boston where the poor people are. Mm. So, But, you know, there was it was quite understood among medical students that having access to black bodies for clinical display and training and anatomical dissection was a selling point. Mm-hmm. In fact, when Richmond, Virginia um, and Philadelphia were actually in contention trying to get a medical school to choose them for a site, one of the arguments made in Virginia was, you should come here. We have a lot, we, we have lots of black people here. Oh, wow. In Philadelphia, they use mostly white people in the, wow. to work in the city. So you need to be here where the black people are. You're opening a medical school, you're going to need black bodies. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is a matter of, it's in my book, and these documents are not obscure or hard to find. You know, mm-hmm. you can look at the footnotes and find the documents. So it was a, a well-entrenched policy. And some might argue, although, again, I can't prove that, but some might argue it still is today. If you look around a certain 
you look at the catchment areas, is what they're called, areas around hospitals that determine who their patients are, the people they treat. The catchment areas refer to more than patients, though. They also refer to research subjects and recent research studies that do not allow people to say no. Um, Non-consensual research studies uh, that are legal in which you can test something on someone without asking their permission to be in the study. Really? Yes. It's a result of a law passed in 1996. I have it in my book, The Code of Federal Regulations, 50.23 and 24. You can look it up online. And it allows for an exception to informed consent. So when studies have been done using that, where have they gone? They've gone to majority-minority cities. Mm-mm-mm. We'll be right back. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think they don't truly understand me, you know? Because they don't. Can't change the world as we change ourselves. Die from the sicknesses if we don't seek the health. All eyes be my witness when I speak was felt. Full house on my hands, the cars I was dealt. Three K's, two A's in America. I'm just a black space born out the nebula. And everything I do or say today is worthwhile. With assurance by your action and your first child. I begin my first now. Sometimes I speak and I feel like it ain't my words. Like I'm just a vessel channeling inside this universe. I feel my ancestors arrested inside of me. It's like they want me to shoot my chance and change the society. But how do I go about it? Tell me where I start. My destiny rerouted when I chose to follow heart. You chose to follow suit, but tell me what it do for you. Except where you down, now you trapped inside the cubicle they built for us. The first step in the change is to take notice. Realize the real games that they try to show us. 300 plus years of them cold shoulders. Your 300 million of it still got no focus. Sorry, America, but I would not be your soldier. Obama just wasn't enough. I need some more closure. And Donald Trump is not equipped to take this country over. Let's face facts, cuz we know what's the real motives. In the land of the free is full of free lotus. Leave us dead in the street to be the organ donors. They disorganized, my people made us all loners. Still got the last names of our slave owners. In the land of the free is full of free lotus. And since you're talking about experimentation, I think this would be a good time, which is at the same time kind of ironic because you only have one chapter around this in your book. It just shows how prominent the Tuskegee syphilis experiment is versus everything else that you document. Is it, can you talk about what really happened during that experiment? Sure. Um, what happened is not at all you see in the movies like Miss Evers Void. In fact, I found it telling that when President Clinton apologized to the survivors of Tuskegee study, Herman Shaw took the mic. His first words were thank you, and his next words were, I want to say that we all hated that movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> the you know, <laughs> the thing is, that movie was a part of a long historical tendency to fictionalize Mm -hmm. history, but fictionalize it in a way that demonizes the victims. Mm -hmm. So what happened with the study was that um, Alabama, Lincoln County, Alabama, was shown to have a high syphilis rate. Not the highest, but quite high. We don't really know how high the syphilis rate was, though, because there's a mythology that all black people had syphilis or an STD. Mm-mm. And 
the tests for syphilis back then were not sensitive to distinguishing between syphilis and a disease called yaws that was still common in the South then and other diseases. So you could have a positive result but not have syphilis. You could have yaws. You could have another related disease. So we don't know that all these people actually had syphilis, but we do know that when a call was put out to the county saying that there's going to be free medical care, a free medical clinic, hundreds of people streamed into the clinic, hundreds. These, the black people who lived there often did not see a doctor their whole lives. They couldn't afford to. There were 16, black, there were 16 doctors in town. Only one was black. And he would see patients for a chicken or a few greens, whatever they could afford. The other doctors, though, charged exorbitantly by the standards of these people. They just couldn't afford medical care. So someone announcing a free clinic, people streamed into it. They tested people because their real goal was to find out who had syphilis. They, the positive tests for syphilis were enormous. So they found um, 399 people, who uh, men, who were infected, who they thought were recently infected, and 200 controls. And they, did, they told these men, you have, quote, unquote, bad blood, a rather amorphous diagnosis. It could, it could mean a lot of things. But they said, well, don't worry, we're going to treat you. They gave the men pink pills, which were aspirin, mm. dyed pink. They gave them spinal taps, very painful, did nothing to treat their disease. But it did measure the effects of the supposed syphilis on their body. The whole point of the study, which is, quite, frankly, very poorly documented. It wasn't a real study, in my opinion. There was no protocol, but it went on for 40 years, 40 years, 1932 to 1972. The longest documented instance of of research abuse in Western history. Um, So for all that time, the real goal was to simply watch how the disease affected the men Mm. and document what it did to their bodies. There was no, there was no attempt to treat them. In fact, there was every attempt made to, to separate them from treatment. When World War II broke out, the men were put on a list of men who could not be recruited in the Army because they were afraid if they went into the Army, they would get treatment for their beating. They didn't want them to have treatment. They wanted to see what the disease did to their bodies. The whole point was to study the ravages of the disease in untreated, quote-unquote, Negro men, which makes no sense because syphilis is an ancient disease. We know what it does to the body. The reason why it made sense was because there was a mythology about black people, just like the one that we didn't feel pain. The mythology was that our nervous systems were so primitive and underdeveloped that diseases that would affect the minds of white people would not affect the minds of black people. So they wanted to show that syphilis would affect the muscles, including the hearts of black people, but would not go to their brains and affect their brains. That was the point of the study. Mm So they did not prove that, of course, because it's not true, but they said that they did. Very interesting study they, they published. When the study was published claiming that we've, we've proven now that black people, I think they actually said Negro, that Negroes um, don't suffer neurological differentiation from syphilis, well, there was a blue ribbon committee of the AMA that said this study is, this paper is nonsense. You haven't proved anything of the kind. <laughs> but... All these men eventually died and were brought to autopsy, and they did the autopsy trying to improve this. Now, the nurse they recruited to make sure that the men did not basically get away, um, her name was Eunice Rivers. And um, she was a, a nurse, but nurses during that period were more, were more like handmaids to physicians. 
They were not scientists. They were not clinicians. They didn't practice independently. They basically did whatever a doctor told them to do. And if you're a black nurse in Alabama, you definitely do whatever the white doctor tells you to do. Mm-hmm. Yet, in many discussions of the study, I have been dismayed to see that Eunice Rivers has been blamed as being the guilty party for the study. And the white researchers, they contributed to that. There is one paper um, written about the study late in the study when people were beginning to learn of it and criticize it. And this paper lists Eunice Rivers as a principal author. (laughs) She couldn't possibly be the principal author. She was a night nurse at the Tuskegee VA hospital when they asked her to start tracking these men. Mm -hmm. She didn't have the scientific acumen. This was an attempt to, um, you know, defray attention to her and make the study like a multiracial study, which it was not. These were white doctors of the public health service. So basically, in the end, um, when a low-level CDC interviewer left the CDC, went to law school, and decided to report the study, he told a journalist friend who wrote an article for it in the Associated Press, and the resulting outrage caused the Surgeon General... um, he wasn't Surgeon General. He was a, a head of he was head of some government um, division whose name I'm, I'm forgetting now. But Merlin Duval was his name, and he was an MD. So he set up a, an ad hoc committee, and the ad hoc committee was told to look at the study, decide whether it should be stopped. But it was given a very narrow charge. It wasn't told to evaluate the study in terms of whether it was right or wrong or whether the government did any wrongdoing. It was just told to look at the study and see, should we stop this or not? Mm. So the group of of people on the ad hoc committee included Ron Brown and the late Jay Katz uh, of Yale University, a very important medical ethicist. And Ron Brown, you know, who was the uh, commerce secretary when he died. So they recommended immediately, of course the study should be stopped. It's a you know, violation and abuse. But this committee never understood the study. They thought they were looking at a research study. What they didn't understand was that the men themselves never knew they were in a research study. Oh, wow. No one ever gotten their permission. And they, had, they didn't understand that. If they had understood that, they would have you know, criticized it much more roundly as being an un- illegal and unethical research study. Yeah. But they knew immediately it should be stopped. But the government didn't stop it. Wow. And when they found that out, yeah, when, the, when they found that out, Ron Brown was the one who actually got the study stopped. He went to um, Edward Kennedy and said, this has to stop immediately. You know, no double talk, no BS, just stop the study. And that happened because of Ron Brown. So, but in the end, it was really sad because um, they hadn't understood the nature of the study. And... Um, I talked to most of the committee members before they passed away. Most of them, I think all of them, except one, are dead now. And they all said the same thing. They said that the guy who was the head of the committee, appointed head of the committee, was a government uh, employee whose job it was to keep them from the report from becoming too critical of the government. Oh, really? Yeah, they said that uh, it's all in the book. They said that he had induced them to water down their report. And after they did that, he abstained from it saying it was too inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So, Gosh. So so what happened to the survivors and their children? Did they get any kind of reparations for this? Yes, but that, too, is a sad story. There were um, children, girlfriends, and wives were infected, as well as the men. Um, and their attorney's name was Fred Gray, 
I don't recall. I read a bit, a lot about the lawsuit. But I don't recall it now. This is like ten years ago that I read it. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'll just say that there was, I believe, a settlement on the order of ten million dollars. But um, the men did not see, in my opinion, a great deal of that. I think I've specified the amounts in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if anybody wants to know, they can look. They go go in the book and see it. So in terms of fin- you know, financial. There's you know, nothing like appropriate recompense for what they went through. Right. I don't know what you would. I don't know how you could repay a man, right. you know, for doing this to him. But this certainly was more of an insult than anything else. There was a government apology, and government apologies. I, I, people have different opinions about these. I'm of the opinion that they are fine if they lead to some real um, amelioration or action. Yeah, it's always a danger that they're empty words, easy to say, mm-hmm. easy to exonerate yourself from having done a horrible thing. What does it mean if you don't have any concrete, um, you know, result from it? In this case, however, um, Clinton did, after he apologized, he did institute a National Center for Bioethics at Tuskegee University. Mm. We'll be right back. They tried to take my power, instead they made a monster. Beast mode, beast mode. My whole empire black like Lucius. We gon' retire Mansa Musa. They mutinies made a mutant. Theories of evolution. Adversities made me Hercules. We gotta be superhuman to deal with what they doing. They don't know what they doing. With future poems and future songs, we keep that metro booming. They treat me, they treat me like I'm an export. They sell me off to jail. They sit me off the wall. They don't treat me like a man. Unless I'm playing sports, unless I wear they jersey, unless I wear they shorts. They talk about my mama, they talk about my cuz, they talk about my sister, they talk about my bros. That make me wanna get that, get that gun in and pull it, and pull that trigger back in, and make that shit go brutal. Now if you take the fist of a fighter, the brain of a scholar, the heart of a lion, and put it with some animosity, this is what you get. 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 Black Frankenstein. Hey, hey, you gonna need an army just to bring me down. Hey, you need a team of officers to beat me down hey, hey, I'm just a man, a human being, my blood is red hey, hey, But when I walk around, I'm like the living dead hey, To you, hey, I'm just a man that God created Genesis Now, that's just the Tuskegee experiment You know, that, that was horrible in itself But there's so many other things that were just so barbaric That were done to African Americans Like, uh, for example, um eugenics to control african-americans reproduction um which is still going on which is still going on yes yeah. so can can you talk about uh the founder of planned parenthood margaret sanger and her connection to eugenics 
And also, maybe within that, you could talk about the relationship between American and German eugenics programs. Um, sure, but before I do, I want to say about the Tuskegee um, study that I wonder, knowing what I know and knowing what the readers of my book will know about how egregious and barbaric and how consistent were the uh, uh, research abuse of African Americans, why has there been the mission and a focus on only this one study? Yes. I, I actually don't understand it because it's horrible as it was, it was a study of omission. You failed to treat people. That's very bad. But there's so many cases in which you, at the same time that study was going on, black people with, um, were being, with syphilis were being killed um, by being um, intentionally given malaria. Mm. And there was like, and um, it was called malaria therapy, misnomer if there ever was one. And there's no attention to that. And I, I don't understand it, but I did read where Carla Holloway of Duke University, she wrote something very intriguing. Someone asked her the same question. Why do people focus on Tuskegee and ignore or even deny the other research abuses? She said, well, whenever you talk about Tuskegee, you get to talk about black men with syphilis. Wow. That's an interesting point yeah. because, of course, you're, not t- you're talking about an infection that has always been wrapped up with um, intimations of immorality. Mm, you know, sexually right. transmitted diseases are always considered to have like some kind of questionable morality uh, surrounding them. And so, so in a way, you know, in a, in a very biased way, you're, you're feeling into a bias in which these men are not exactly innocent victims. You know, mm-hmm. after all, they had syphilis. So that's really intriguing. I really wish somebody would um, sort of do more with that and look into it more rigorously because I think it might be really illuminating. And that is intriguing because now that you said that, when 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 we when you kind of do talk about eugenics and so forth, it kind of also fits in that because a lot of the they would claim things with African Americans that they were really promiscuous. This is the reason why stuff like this needs to be stopped or curtailed in a sense. They will always use that kind of angle, it seemed like. I was reading correctly. Right, right. Uh, The same people who promulgated the myth that black people didn't feel pain and that black people had nervous systems that were too um, primitive to um, feel anxiety or suffer damage, these same people uh, told the world that black people were sexually profligate. That unlike white women in the Victorian era, black women were sexually irrepressible Jezebels who were always uh, enticing white men into inappropriate sexual relationships. Mm-hmm. That's how. That's why we had all these mulattoes on the plantation, right? <laughs> and that um, and that black men were actual bestial mm-hmm. in their sexual behavior. They were a great danger to white women because they would rape white women without any hesitation mm-hmm. if they weren't strictly controlled and because all black people carried STDs, when a black man raped a a white woman, he was not only raping her, he was also consigning her to a life with an STD. So black people were considered these horrible vectors of sexual disease and sexual violence. And And you're right, that played right into the willingness to include them as eugenic, um, castaways or pariahs. Uh, Margaret Sanger, who you asked about, is, you know, remembered as a feminist, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and she was a feminist, but she was something else. She was a eugenicist, and she she fiercely uh, believed that in negative eugenics, that is that we need to cull from 
the um, human family tree, people who carry characteristics that they can pass on to their, their progeny that lead to disease, stupidity, death, even during, during her era, even to poverty. Almost anything negative was ascribed to um, genetics and eugenics. So you had to get rid yourself of these people in order to have a healthy society. When Sanger championed birth control, it's often framed in her role as a champion of women. But she was only a champion of white women. Mm. Uh, she was very concerned about birth control being promulgated in black communities. She thought black communities were the ones who needed the most to curtail their reproduction. Because as um, she often said, that the reproduction of um, black people tends to take place the most among the people who should not be reproducing. You know, the unintelligent, the poor, you know. So this was her mantra. And unfortunately, I mean, in my opinion, and I'm not alone, if you look at her actual writings and the writings of the people who supported her, unfortunately, you know, her eugenicist um, activities were much more effective and stringent than her birth control activities. And two have been hopelessly confused in the minds of many people. So it becomes very convenient to call her a birth control advocate and a champion of women. But only you can only do that by forgetting that the only women whose reproductive she championed were the were white women. Mm -hmm. She did not want black women to reproduce Mm -hmm. and uh, was actually quite clear on that point. Um, But that was the past and Planned Parenthood still exists. And like most institutions and people, it's a mixture of, in my opinion, of good and bad things. It's good to have reproductive choices, but it's really bad to demonize certain people's reproduction as less valuable than others. And to promote, um, promote contraception disproportionately. Yeah. which I believe is what it has done. Mm-hmm. And then we also have Planned Parenthood is not alone. We have many, many um, medications and techniques that have been championed in order to curtail reproduction of people of color preferentially. Norplant, for example, the implantable contraception. contraception. It was championed among not only women who wanted to have it implanted, who wanted five years of guaranteed sterility, but it was also champion among young teenage girls and you saw conservative um, publications and people saying yes these young uh, teenage girls no one had to say they were black because when you talked about the institutions where you were doing this they they served black girls Mm -hmm. school-based clinics in baltimore for example 98 percent black Mm. and so you had the conservatives saying oh yeah we need that we need to make sure that these girls don't have all these babies for us to support but you also had like um, supposedly more objective publications, like the Philadelphia Inquirer said better nor plant than an abortion, mm-hmm. as if those were the only two options available for black girls. You, you know, this, this kind of uh, brings to mind is what kind of consent did they get? Did they have to get parental consent? Or Very good question. Very good question. I happen during that time that nor plant was being promulgated, I happen to have been running um, – um, preg- anti-pregnancy um, programs in upstate New York. Mm. And it was really interesting. Our highest, our area that had the highest pregnancy rate at that time was an exclusively white suburb. Mm. But everyone wanted me to focus on the city. Really? Yes. 
And as I talked to my colleagues, I found that that was not unusual because of people's perception Mm -hmm. that teenage pregnancy was a problem of black girls. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, though, that if you look at if you look at what was actually happening, you had these school based clinics and on the on the surface, they sound it sounds acceptable. What you're saying is you've got, yes, technically these girls are adolescents, okay? Technically, they're in local parentis. But you've got a 16, 17-year-old girl who wants birth control, but she's not going to get it if we have to get her, her mother's permission. Mm-hmm. Isn't it better to make sure she has the right option, can protect herself, than force uh, her to tell her mother? So what, they, what happened was they would exempt these girls. Uh, so that's how this language is anyway. Yeah. They would exempt parental permission. So a girl could go to a clinic, get birth control, get a pap smear, get an exam, sometimes have an abortion with no one telling the parent. Yet that parent is sitting next to a work colleague who's white, mm-hmm. who goes to a uh, school in the suburbs. And at that school, if the nurse wants to give that white child an aspirin, they've got to call the parent first. So that was the reality of that time. And actually, I lived through that. I was working in the field at the time, so I was really well-versed in, in the uh, disparate treatment of black and white, you know, urban and suburban adolescents. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Gotta stand for something, I'll be far for nothing. Time to stop fronting. Yeah, we stand for something, never fall for nothing. That's all we wanting. Close your eyes, look who you see, God. Got a lock like a key card. Yeah. It'd be hard. Going through up and downs like a seesaw. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've been doing the street art since knee high. What I write is gospel, just like the truth in the book of Levi. My criticism and structures be lingering up in these minds. Right. The system here to fuck us, I'm tinkering with the design. Right. These niggas, Uncle Ruckus, they want us to think they deep now. My people fight for justice before we put up the peace sign. Yeah. Rappers run the game like a race, but I'm leading. They say they lost their faith, I give them something to believe in. Got strife like an Adidas. Uh, they can never join us, so they try to beat us. Beloved pieces can join like a fetus. Yeah, life is hard. Ain't no guarantee you'll get a job. Remember, even the devil used to live with God. That's why you gotta stand for something before. You cast blood for now. Y'all want nothing to do. Stop. Understand something. Need to stand for something. Take the stand for something. Lend a hand for something. Take my hand for something. You, you also had some parts of the book where, you know, there was major research targeting young black children without parental consent. Yes. Like, for example, you were talking about stuff that went on at Columbia University, at Harvard University, in regards to those. Right, and these are things that happened in the late 1990s. We're not Mm. talking about ancient history. Mm -hmm. But there's a long history of that. I mean... In 1947, there was a famous case, well, infamous case called Bonner versus Moran, and it was involving a young black boy whose aunt had taken to the hospital ostensibly to visit the aunt's daughter, his cousin, who had um, been in some kind of accident. When they got there, the aunt talked to the doctor who told the young boy, we're going to treat your cousin by giving her a skin graft, but we need it from you. Mm. And we need it from you 
while you're still living. So you're going to come to the hospital, and we're going to attach your skin to your cousin's skin and see if it takes. <laughs> now, the, the mother was never consulted, told about and The mother was actually ill, ill at home, and had no idea of what was happening. So in the end, the skin graft did not take, and the boy himself, he had an infection and almost died, became very ill. He did survive, but he was scarred for life, and the mother, of course, sued. When she sued her son, who was by then 15 years old, the surgeon was explaining, yeah, I know he was a little boy, but, you know, he was kind of mature for his age. So when he said he would do it, I kind of accepted that. Well, fortunately, the judge did not see it that way. But I found it really interesting because one of the patterns I see with African-American children is that um, in situations where you would think that anyone would, would... would say to themselves, this is a 12-year-old kid, a 13-year-old kid, obviously we need the parents' permission. Mm-hmm. That thought pattern seems less likely to emerge when it's black children. Yeah, and you bring up a yeah. good point in your book about that, about the XYY syndrome study. Right. You know, right. that right there, if that was ever successful, that would have been very detrimental, um, if you could kind of talk about that. Sure. Um, XYY is a genetic anomaly um, it was thought during the 1960s, a study was published in which it said, this is very interesting, it said, men with XYY, it only affects men, men with XYY are twice as likely to end up in violent in, in hospitals where they're criminally violent mm. as men without XYY. Well, that's really concerning. There's a search on now, you have to do a genetic test to see if, you're, if a boy has it, but now they're saying we need to find the boys who have this and do something about it, right? Okay. But what the study I'm, – I'm laughing because I still can't believe this happened. If you read the paper the study was based on, yes, they have twice the chance. But you know what that chance is? Hmm. It's um, 2%. <laughs> so, you know, you have one boy in 100 who ends up in these jails. So if he has XYY, it might, there'll be two of them in 100. Mm-mm. That's We're not talking about a huge yeah. difference. It was a rare anomaly, and as it turned out later on, that was to, Link was discredited in any way. But they thought that it was tied to violence. So what did they do? In Baltimore, they looked at 15,000 black boys. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You're looking for a genetic anomaly tied to violence. Why are you looking at black Just boys? Black boys, yeah. So if they had found that it was true, if they had found the link between this genetic anomaly and violence, what would the headline have been? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been anomaly linked to violence. It would have been anomaly in black boys linked to violence, mm-hmm. right? right? They're only looking in black boys, and therefore anything they find is going to be described as a black trait. Mm-hmm. This is something that recurs over and over again. The illogic is so obvious. You don't need to be a scientist to understand that, and yet it's something that recurs over and over again. You could call it sloppy science, or you could call it a deliberate manipulation. But it's not right, no matter how you look at it. So they were looking at boys who had this anomaly. What did they find? They had 15,000 black boys and 500 white boys. The black boys, for example, uh, by the way, came from poor environments. Some of them were from orphanages. Uh, some of them for, were for boys who had psychological problems or physical problems uh, or had lower intelligence, supposedly lower intelligence. The white boys were taken from a private school. Mm-hmm. Not exactly a match control group. But they found that where was the highest rate of this anomaly? 
right. and white boys. Wow. So at that point, all discussion of genetic violence disappears, right? Oh <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not worrying about that. That happened in 1969 and 70. Oh Fast forward 28 years to New York City, someone decided to look at another marker supposedly sh- linking black boys to violence. Again, you're only looking at yeah. black boys. Mm-hmm. And I called the researcher and I said, why are you only looking at black boys? And he said, we're not. It's open to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you have only black boys in the study. Well, that's our catchment area. It just happens to be who, oh, who turned up for the study. You know, Mm-mm-mm. they live in the area. They're the ones that we treated. You know, I said, well, I'm looking at a copy of the protocol, and it says that whites are excluded. Only black and Hispanic boys are permitted. Wow. And he said, where, he said, where did you get that? Whoa. I said, never mind. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then he said, uh, so I'll, I'll get back to you. He didn't get back to me, so I called him back. And he said, they told me I can't talk to you any longer. Wow. But here is a naked example. They are looking at black boys. Mm-hmm. Black, white mm-hmm. boys were excluded from the study. So had they found the positive correlation oh, yeah. between what they were looking for and violence, again, it would have been characterized as black violence. Wow. You know, something affecting black black boys that leads to violence. And you, know what's um, a, you know what's interesting about that is – if they did, for some reason, find that correlation, that makes perfect sense for the prison pipeline. And, of course. And you actually go into the book about how prisoners are the new – seem like the new clinical material for, yes. for, uh, for the medical industry. If you can talk about what black prisoners have to go through. Well, but first I want to talk about the fact that this particular study began in the prisons. Oh, really? It began in the prisons because how are these boys, black boys identified? Mm. They were identified by looking at young black men in the juvenile justice system, mm. finding out which ones had younger brothers, and then going to the home with a corrections officer and a researcher and telling the mother they wanted to use a younger boy in the study. Wow. Now, at least one of the mothers I spoke to said, I put two and two together. And they told me, you know, that they identified my son because of my older son who was in the juvenile justice system. And I felt like if I said no and resisted them, that things could go badly for my older son. Mm. I felt like I had to. And that was, I think, in the intent. The intent was to make people feel coerced and participating yeah. because they were worried about the health of the welfare of their older son. So, mm-hmm. yes, you're right. This was like a continuation of this prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Now, can you repeat your last question? No, no. I, I, it was just creating a connection in my mind that if if they were able to prove something genetically that it was we were had a propensity to violence, it will give them a reason to lock more black boys and men in, as prisoners. And because how black prisoners are treated now, it seems like they're like the new clinical material. And if you could just talk about the plight of black prisoners when it comes to the medical industry. Well, it's interesting. The plight of black prisoners was, has been har- well documented. It's horrible. It's so bad that in the 1970s, prisons were effectively closed to most medical research. Hmm. Only a small, um, a narrow spectrum of research studies should, could be undertaken. And supposedly, those that were undertaken had to have some potential benefit for prisoners. 
this happened this went on for a long time until 2005 when um the institute of medicine convened a panel to a- answer the question should prisons be reopened to medical research wow and the panel decided that yes they should mm. and it's not that prisons were ever closed to medical research. Research was being conducted. But now the full spectrum of uh, research studies is now open. I looked in some that I documented in the book. The ones I looked into were, um, I don't pretend that they're representative, but the ones I described were especially horrible. And there are many, many reasons why you can't use prisons for research um, in an ethical manner. Number one, prisons have lost most important, um, mm-hmm. most important civil rights. There's no such thing as voluntary consent in a prison. Other countries know that, which is why only one other country in the world permits research with prisoners. They know that a prisoner cannot truly say yes or no in a voluntary way. There are a lot of constraints. And then, of course, there's a fact that prisons are opaque. If something untoward is happening in a hospital or in a juvenile center or other places, you have some hope of being able to go in there and discover what's happening or having somebody witness or get a phone call from a whistleblower or or a family member. But prisons are closed. Outsiders can't go in. um, And the things that happen there can be very, very effectively hidden for a long time. So the bottom line is no research should take place in prisons, in my opinion. You can't do it ethically. It's an abuse to the prisoner. And um, we have a long history of horrible things being done to prisoners and no one discovering it for 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And, you know, if I read correctly, you know, there's there's different phases of clinical trials. And the first phase is all about testing the safety of a medication. And it seemed like they do a lot of phase one trials inside of uh, the prisons. And one of, one of the most notorious doctors, I think, was Dr. Albert Kligman, if I say that correctly. I know mm-hmm. there was others, Kligman. but... If you can. Kligman's work is well documented. That's mm. that's why he's a, um In fact, Alan Hornblum wrote a very good book entitled Acres of Skin, mm. all about Kligman's work in the Holmesburg um, prison system in Pennsylvania. Very well worth reading. So, yes, um, it, like I said, it's indefensible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and what was interesting is that, you, you know, some prisoners would actually seek out being part of experimentations, if I read that correctly? Yes, because of their environment. See, the inherently coercive environment of prisons makes things that you and I would run from, Mm -hmm. things that prisoners would embrace because of their living conditions. For example, um, many people, people resist hearing this, I've, I've learned, but it's the truth. Many people are in prisons not because they're guilty, but because they are poor. Mm -hmm. They can't afford bail. They can't afford decent representation. So money is very important in prisons. Money to buy essentials, things that we take up for granted is like toothpaste, things like that. Um, People need money in order to get those. So having money for commissary, in fact, even buying things like cigarettes for transactions. And, you know, people... People think of that as something, well, isn't that a luxury? No, not really, because the cigarettes can be used to buy protections of various sorts and, you know, very essential things, things that you really need. So how do you get money in a prison? Mm-hmm. Um, you could work in the laundry. I don't know what they're paid, but it's something minuscule. I mean, we're talking about a few cents a day. The only, when you compare that to the money offered for research, 
were a prisoner um, during the period I was writing about. I'm sure it's very different now. I'm a lot more now. But where a pr- prison could, prisoner could earn hundreds of dollars, well, that's the difference between having, you know, a yeah. well-balanced diet, you know, enough cigarettes to buy off whoever you need to buy off, you know, protection, or even being able to hire a lawyer, to, you know, to be able to afford phone calls home, just, you know, basic things like that. So the money that they earn is not a luxury, but it's essential. It's money they must have. If they're not going to get it from research, they're not going to get it. And that's why many prisoners will volunteer to do things that you and I would never agree to do. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you and I would never agree to have, um, you know, I don't want to think something. I'm trying to think something that's not too gross. <laughs> never, th- never agree to think of um, having infectious material implanted under our skin, for mm-hmm. example. Right. But people lined up to do that at Holmesburg Prison. Mm-hmm. They were only too happy to do that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. That could be the price of, you know, sending some money home or, you know, t- fulfilling some basic need that they have. So basically, the fact that they were eager to sign up for them is, of course, something, you know, people were happy to bring forth to see they want it. We're doing them a favor. They want it. Well, they want it because they're living in hell. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. you should not take advantage of the fact they're living in hell and pretend that that's the same thing as voluntary consent. It's not. Right. And like I said, other countries realize that. Right. We'll be right back. book has so many just barbaric examples of what has gone on with African Americans and also what could be continually going on with African Americans and just people of African descent around the world. You just talked about prisons and how they really don't have any rights. But you 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 shed an interesting point in the book where you said stuff that happened to African Americans back in the day is now happening over in Africa today. Could could you elaborate yes. on that a little bit? Well, yeah, Africa 
uh, poor parts of Asia, mm-hmm. even Southern America, the developing world, the tropical world, yes. What's happening is that in my ne- – the book I wrote after this book, after de- uh, it's called Deadly Monopolies. Mm-hmm. I talk about the corporate control of medical research and medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Corporations now not only pay for medical research, they control medical research. And they like doing research in the developing world. They like it because it's very cheap and very fast. What they have are molecules or other entities that they have a patent on, but they can't sell it. They can't sell it as a medication until the FDA approves it. Mm-hmm. To get FDA approval, they need to go through the. They need to go to clinical trials, other research protocols. They take a lot of time and a lot of money, but they're a lot faster and a lot cheaper if you do them in Africa or Brazil or mm-hmm. Thailand. So what they do is they conduct these studies in the developing world, say in Nigeria. They do them quickly. They do them with people who are desperate for any kind of health care. Remember what I said in Tuskegee? The clinic was thronged by people desperate to see a doctor yeah. mm-hmm. who, or, who would never see one ordinarily. That's what happens when they go to – and also these corporations very often, if they're testing something, say they're testing an antibiotic against meningitis, um, which Pfizer was doing. You know what they did? They flew to Nigeria during a meningitis epidemic. Wow. So that people, of course, they were in no position to dis- distinguish between, is that the um, Doctors Without Borders tent or is that the Pfizer tent? All they knew was that these people had medication that could save the lives of their children, and that's mm-hmm. what they did. Mm-hmm. So these companies are doing this. And so that's why research in the third world is burgeoning. Also, one really important thing that happened is that the global law that um, governs research in the developing world, Declaration of Helsinki by the World Medical Association, it was changed in 2002. Um, It's usually described as having been modernized, but it was modernized in a way that reduces protections for people in the developing world. It used to be, for example, that if you had a serious disorder, a life-threatening disorder, and you wanted to test a medication for it, you had to test a me- medication against a medica- another medica- medication known to work. Uh-huh. So your new medication, you know, drug X, had to be tested against drug Y that we already know works. That was to make sure that everybody got some medication. Mm. It's a dangerous or fatal disease. You can't have people dying because you wanted to test the drug. Right. That's still a law in most of the U.S., but they changed that in Helsinki. They said, now you have to test it against whatever is the standard of care in that country. Oh, that's, the standard, that's standard of care in that country is usually nothing. Right. So now they can test it again and give some people no protection at all. So anyway, these things are feeding um, a conflagration of human rights abuses and, and research in the developing world. And it's you know, American researchers, by and large, who are conducting this. Mm-hmm. This is not a matter of, of, of physicians there doing this. Mm-hmm. It's physicians here trying to perfect medication that effectively, eventually will be used on Americans in the third world. Your epilogue was very, very informative. You, 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 know, you talked about all of these issues and problems that African-Americans suffered through medical research and just the cognitive dissidence of medical research towards African-Americans. And you gave some possible solutions, some tangible solutions. Um, uh, what, what, what are some of those? I think that 
one of the really important things is that there is um, a framework for um, judging research protocols. If someone has an idea for research study, one of the things they have to do is get it approved by an institutional review board, an IRB. Uh, Hospitals have IRBs. Medical schools have IRBs. uh, Some companies have IRBs. It has to be approved before you can actually begin doing a study with patients, with subjects. And these IRBs are structured in such a way that Sometimes looks good, but is not very effective in terms of protecting subjects. For example, the makeup of the IRB has to include one person not involved in uh, the science of the study. One person who's not a researcher, that person is charged with representing the community. Well, think about it. If you're in an IRB and you're sitting there and you are a layperson, the uninvolved, you know, member, and you're staring at 50 people who have PhDs and MDs, all telling you why this is a good thing. But you have a feeling in your gut or you have a knowledge that this is going to be a problem. How effective can you be? Right. You know? So I propose that instead of having that one lone defender of the layperson, we split IRBs um, so that they are half researchers and half the people who will be affected by the study. Mm. So if you want to go to... Um, say, Columbia Medical School, and do a research study on genetic anomalies in young black men uh, that could lead to future violence, you'd have to have half Columbia researchers and half mothers from Washington Heights Mm. whose kids would be involved. I think that's essential because if you don't have that, then you can't say you have any representation at all. Um, of the people who are going to be in the study. So the, you know, the response to that has often been, you can't do that because lay people can't understand these studies. You know, they don't understand the science. You can't explain to them why you do X and Y. And my response is, if that's true, then how do you propose to explain the study to them, as you have to do by law, <laughs> exactly. once it's approved? Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot of very intelligent researchers who can explain anything to anybody. Now, the key is... You need time and effort to plan how you do this sometimes. Most people can't do it off the top of their heads. Mm-hmm. You can't expect them to do that. But I think some time spent um, thinking about and planning how you're going to present this to lay people is a really good and important thing to have to do, yeah. you know, for the researcher as well as for the lay person. In any event, it's essential for the protection of lay people. So that's, I think if I, if I saw nothing else happen, that should happen. Good. And the other thing that should happen is that medical education, and I'm already seeing this happen, so I'm very happy. Medical ed- education has to be revised. Um, I've taken a lot of history of medicine courses. I've spoken at a lot of conferences, and I'm appalled by the fact that um, the received knowledge is often unquestioned. It's not what we think of as, you know, historians and researchers conducting themselves, but very often if you have one uh, historian or one researcher who says X never happened, you know, mm-hmm. then he's not going to be questioned. Um, we have a history. When I read history of medicine, I don't read about any of the studies in my book. I can't think of one except for Tuskegee that has appeared in any of these books. So, My take on that is you're basically lying to young students. Mm -hmm. You're telling them this is a history of medical research, but you're only giving them part of it. You know, we have to integrate what we now know about the broader history of medical research so that when people 
when people, including researchers, see an abuse, they're going to be more likely to recognize it because now they've been exposed to it in the past. Um, I've actually been, you know, um, an auditor in IRB sessions where I've heard researchers make an argument for something, and I think to myself, that's exactly what they said for Tuskegee. Free care, you know? I mean, people, so I think it's really important to broaden the history of medicine to the point where it's much more accurate and much more truthful so people will have a better understanding of where dangers lie. So, and when abuse exists. I, I mean, your book should be required reading for some of these courses. <laughs> I, because if, if through reading your book, it seems like, I don't know, even back then, the medical medical students and physicians, they had this cognitive dissonance about African Americans and the poor. And something like your book would make sense in medical ethics class. Well, I'm happy to say that it is part of many curricula now. Oh, that's good to hear. That's why I said I'm happy. So it's starting to happen, you know. Okay, I'm sure it's going to happen much more slowly than I'd like to see it happen, but, you know, it is. That's really important. And I also am beginning to see, which makes me really happy, other people write books about aspects of things I have in my book, yeah. which, is really, which means it's entering the um, historical canon. And I'm talking about white historians, um, so, which makes a difference. Yeah. So we're talking about people who... So um, I'm thinking of one really good one is a book by a guy named Downs. Um, it's entitled Sick from Freedom. Sick from Freedom, chap- you said? Yeah, I have, a, I, have a cha- yes, I have a chapter in my book um, in, entitled Diagnosis Freedom. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how uh, freedom, the concept of freedom for African Americans was considered to be a medical disaster. Mm. If you set African-Americans free from enslavement, they can't care for themselves. They quickly succumb to disease. So this other historian named Downs wrote a book called Sick from Freedom, and it's all about that, about how around that period of the plight of um, enslaved people who, who suddenly found themselves free, but without any kind of medical support, and in fact, in a hostile medical environment. So anyway, as I see things like that happen, I see other people write about write books about things I've touched on. Oh, there's a wonderful book that came out in 2015. I reviewed it for the New York Times, um, entitled Spectacle, all about Oda Benga. Oh gosh, whose yeah. story I took, yeah, whose story I told yeah. in the Circus Africanus chapter. Um, her her last name is Newkirk, I believe. She wrote a really engrossing. History of Oda Benga and some related people that, um, you know, really went into great depth and was just, to me, just a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. But I, it makes me really happy to see things like that and to know that, you know, this history is getting broader currency and people are actually beginning to explore it more deeply. And yeah. just hope it continues. So what do, you, what do you want people mainly to take away from this book? I want to take – I want people to understand that as I – grew up, and I think a lot of African Americans grew up, and as I began to research this, I heard over and over again that the abuses I proposed to study were myths, and that African Americans were paranoid, that their fear of medicine and medical research was not well-founded, it was based in, in their ignorance. And so when I finished this book, you know, my fervent hope is that nobody can ever call this history a myth again. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a myth. It was real. And it, and it 
reveals a lot of things about our behaviors in the healthcare system. It reveals them to be rational. But what I want African Americans to remember is that even though the fear is rational, it makes sense, it doesn't work for us anymore. So it's rational, it's not paranoid, but it's also something we have to rethink because we need medical care. We know we need health care like anybody else. The key is being able to discern what is good care and what is personally and what is possibly uh, abusive. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Harriet A. Washington, thank you so much for being on the show. We truly appreciate it. I've enjoyed every minute of it, Taj. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. <laughs>